Hello there. My name is Jamin Melanson, and welcome to my podcast entitled Reclaimed. Over the next several weeks, you will learn about how I have been reclaimed by God, and still am being reclaimed. My hope, however, is not that you will only learn about me, but you'll also learn about yourself. I'll be using personal stories and biblical stories to relate different truths about being reclaimed as we focus on learning humility, integrity, loyalty, and tranquility in our walk with Jesus. So grab your favorite beverage, something to munch on, and join me as we embark on this journey of being reclaimed. Part 1. Reclaimed in Humility True humility does not know that it is humble. If it did, it would be proud from the contemplation of so fine a virtue. Martin Luther Chapter 3. Mountains and Valleys Mountaintops inspire leaders, but valleys mature them. Winston Churchill Now, I've never actually climbed a real mountain. I've done so countless times in video games, but I'm told those don't actually count. But I do hope to one day climb a mountain. In Jamaica, I've actually driven up the side of a mountain, but I hear that's not the same feeling as when you climb it. Now, I have climbed some really big hills. On a mission trip to Antigua, we hiked up a large hill, and on Gramanian Island, I've scaled some of the tall rock formations at the beach. Both times when reaching the top, the exhale of accomplishment escaped my chest as I took in the view of the world around me. The beauty and majesty of God's creation was the first thing that caught my eyes. In Antigua, it was the unscathed pattern of the forests and jungles below. On Gramanian, it was the sound and sight of the waves crashing against the beach. You honestly feel like you're on top of the world, and it is inspiring. But life isn't always lived on the mountaintops. You know those great moments of life? Like the birth of a child, your wedding day, a promotion at work, or even fulfilling a life dream. It's mostly lived in the valleys, those mundane, everyday parts of life between the mountains. And despite what we think, not all valleys are bad. Some are just part of the travel between one mountaintop and another. However, There are some valleys that are deep and trying. The loss of a loved one, the depression setting in after losing your job, the discovery of cancer in you or someone you know, or maybe an unexpected bill that drains your savings. A couple weeks ago when I was writing for this podcast, I was in one of those valleys. I almost didn't work on the podcast because I didn't want to. I didn't want to write. I didn't want to read. I didn't want to do the things that I enjoyed because they become quite difficult for me to immerse myself in. Now, I'll be digging more into depression and anxiety in part four when we look at being reclaimed through tranquility. But since these were a part of that valley, I wanted to touch on them just a little bit. Now, because I wrote this a few weeks ago when I was going through the valley, I'm going to read it as I wrote it back then. It will just make the whole thing flow a little bit better. Let's begin. An Epic Contest 
Before I share with you about my current valley, I want us to look at the story of Elijah. His story actually illustrates this idea of mountains and valleys perfectly. Now Elijah was a no-nonsense kind of guy. We're first introduced to him in 1 Kings 17, and he was pronouncing to King Ahab a drought, specifically no rain or dew on the land of Israel because of their disobedience. And the passage begins with this. Now Elijah. What? Like, we've never even met this character before, and the author is acting as if we should know him. He basically showed up out of the blue declaring judgment. Now, I wouldn't do that unless you were 100% sure, maybe 110% sure, that that is God telling you to do it. Because you need to know, you need to know with every ounce of your being that that is God telling you to declare judgment. But Elijah just shows up declaring judgment. King Ahab and all of Israel. Talk about an entrance. Elijah was able to do this because his confidence was in the Lord. He wasn't proud and puffed up. He was humble enough to know that God was using him for a purpose. Two years of the drought passed and during the third year Elijah invited King Ahab and the priests of the false god Baal to Mount Carmel for an epic contest. Now I understand uh, in some um, some places they pronounce Baal as Baal, um, but because I watched a lot of Stargate, and we've already established a couple podcasts ago that Stargate's probably true, I'm going to pronounce it as Baal, so take that as you will. But Elijah invites King Ahab and the priest of the false god Baal to Mount Carmel for this epic contest. The line was drawn in the sand. If Baal was God, worship him. If the Lord was God worship him. Elijah alone stood against 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah. Baal was one of the most important gods in the Canaanite religion. One of his many duties, listen to this, this is interesting, one of his many duties was being lord over the rain and dew. Do you remember what I said just a couple minutes ago? Or actually more accurately what Elijah said? He specifically told Ahab there would be a drought where no rain or dew was going to touch Israel. And it came to pass, even though Baal, who most of the people worshipped, was supposed to be in command of that. Asherah was often portrayed as the consort of Baal, and at some points even the consort of Yahweh, which is the Hebrew name for the Lord. So her prophets were summoned to show that Yahweh was in no way connected to her. And I really, I just love All these little details in the Bible just shows how it all flows together. Now for the contest, each side was given a bull and an altar. The God who answered with fire was the victor. As a true gentleman, and likely because he knew how the story was going to end, Elijah let the prophets of Baal go first. Now for hours, the prophets of Baal called on his name to answer, and there was silence. And and this is my favorite part. Elijah mocked Baal with sarcasm, most likely with a smirk on his face. I mean, I'd have one. I'm sure you would, too. He's like, maybe maybe Baal's daydreaming or relieving himself, you know, using the bathroom. Or maybe he went on a long trip and he's away. Or, Or better yet, he's probably asleep and you just need to yell louder and wake him up. Now, I realize that this can be portrayed as not living with humility. However, keep in mind who Elijah was mocking. He wasn't mocking the prophets. He was mocking Baal, this false god. 
more than likely there was a demonic influence behind this god that is who elijah is mocking and he's able to do so because he's confident in the lord his god and again take a moment and notice the words he was using he's describing things that a human does created deities are often described as being superhumans but the lord the lord isn't human the Lord doesn't daydream, he doesn't use the bathroom, he doesn't take a long trip, he doesn't go to sleep. The Lord is ever-present, all-powerful, and all-knowing. Waiting patiently, Elijah let the prophets of Baal waste their time with the false god. Finally, the sun started to set, and the prophets of Baal were still calling on his name. Elijah calls the people over to him. He sets up an altar with twelve stone, representing all the tribes of Israel. And this is interesting because this is happening during the split kingdom. So there's 10 tribes in the north in Israel and two tribes in the south in Judah. But Elijah chooses these 12 stones to show that the Lord is both God of Israel and Judah. And then he digs a trench around the altar. And then four large jars of water were poured over it three times. Sounds a little weird. Now, and if you read this in the Bible, you probably stop and you're like, did I read that correctly? Did he just pour water over this altar that he wants fire to be lit upon? Because in Elijah's mind, not only will the Lord answer, he will send fire on a drenched altar to prove even more that he is the real God. Now looking up to heaven, Elijah prayed, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, prove today that you are God in Israel and I am your servant. Prove that I have done all this at your command. O Lord, answer me. Answer me so that these people will know about you, O Lord, and that you have brought them back to yourself. Boom! Fire flashed down and consumed the water, the altars, and the bull. There was no mistaking it. The Lord is God. Elijah was on a mountain both figuratively and physically. The people of Israel fell face down in awe and started to worship and ask the Lord for forgiveness. I understand this next part seems a little out of place, but there is a reason for it. Elijah ordered the people to seize all the prophets of Baal, and they were brought to the Kishon Valley and killed. And this was done to fulfill the law of Deuteronomy 18.20, which says, But any prophet who falsely claims to speak in my name, or who speaks in the name of another god, must die. Now that does seem extreme, and some of you are probably shaking your head in disgust because stories like this in the Bible are uncomfortable. They are uncomfortable because we're reading them from a Western culture perspective, but we cannot read the Bible from our perspective. We must read it from the worldview of the authors of what it was originally written. With this in mind, we understand the prophets of Baal deceive people into worshiping a false god. It's even believed that children were sometimes sacrificed in order to appease Baal in times of dire need. So the death of the prophets was a judgment from God. Who is the only one able to pass such a judgment? And he did so for their many sins. Again, it may be hard to wrap your head around this, and I encourage you to dig into reading the Bible from the Eastern culture perspective it was written in. You can check out things like the Bible Project online because they have many good resources to answer your questions. But anyways, back to the story. King Ahab returned home to his wicked wife Jezebel and told her everything. More accurately, he pouted like a little child who wasn't getting his own way. In response, she sent a message to Elijah basically saying, May the gods kill me if you are not dead tomorrow. 
you know what Elijah did? He ran away. He was afraid. He just saw the Lord answer in an incredible display and prove himself and also prove that Elijah was his spokesperson. Yet instead of living in that victory, Elijah fled. Immediately after being on a mountain of faith, he descended into the valley of fear. And he even arrived at the point where he said, I've had enough, Lord. Take my life. Living in the Valley. I'm not going to share a lot of detail in this section, mainly because it's not that important and I don't want to cause any strife or disharmony within the global church. However, there are some things I need to explain to help you understand why I'm in this valley. And in order for you to best understand, I need to rewind five years to the summer of 2016. Now in the tradition of the church that I am connected with, one must undergo a series of strict interviews to be accepted for ordination. After those are complete, you must complete two years serving at a local church full time. And then you have a final more intense interview to see whether you're approved or not. And by the summer of 2016, I had passed all the necessary requirements for my ordination. There was only one problem. I am a Canadian citizen and I was living and working in the States and my R1 work visa expired on July 7th, 2016 at midnight. And once my visa expired, we had to stay in the US while we waited for the extension to be approved. Now, man, I could write a whole book about our experiences between June and December of 2016. But all you really need to know is this was another stressful valley in our life. And I'm fairly certain that anytime you're dealing with the government, it's always a valley. I'm positive it's written in their small print. Anyways, we came to Canada for our family camp that ranged from July 1st to July 10th. We had applied for an extension from my visa and we were praying it would come through while we were at camp. However, with each passing day, that hope slipped through our fingers like a wet rope. What made things even more discouraging is the ordination service was scheduled for Friday, July 8th, 2016. Yeah, the day after my visa expired. You see, if we were not back in the States by July 7th, 2016, 1159.59, then we wouldn't be allowed back in. We even asked the border for a one-day extension, but we were denied. We returned to Maine to abide by the timetable and I was deeply saddened that I was going to have to wait another year for my ordination. For those of you who don't know, ordination is like being made into a knight. It's like a graduation ceremony where you're granted the title of reverend and your calls affirmed as a pastor. And I had been looking ahead to this day for many years and for reasons outside of my control, it was postponed. Now as you already know from previous podcasts, we returned to Canada in December of 2016 and I was approached to serve on staff at a, another local church about an hour away from where Naomi and I grew up. And I was ordained in the summer of 2017 and I started my position. But my parents gave me a card that has stuck with me through the years. It was a card of congratulations but in it they wrote this, God the Father has ordained you. God the Father has ordained you. This echoed what they had been saying to me all year. You see, my calling was from God and if my ordination service never happened, 
I'd still be ordained by God. And this humbled me. Remember, humility is thinking of others before yourself, and this includes thinking about what God wants for you before your own desires. And to be completely honest, I wanted to be applauded by humanity. And God was already applauding me. This whole event changed my perspective moving forward, which is important to the rest of the story. For four years, I worked at the church as the part-time assistant pastor and at the local bookstore to help bring in some income. I started off at the church as the head of the small group, which is just weekly get-togethers of people in the church to live together, pray together, study. So I was the head of that department, and I assisted with the youth group, which is a fun night for teens where they play games and learn about God. And that was on a weekly basis. After about a year, I continued with youth, and I transitioned out of small groups and became the leader of the missions department, which was supporting and interacting with people who go to other countries to tell others about Jesus, and the outreach department, creating opportunities for the gospel to be shared with the local community. I loved it. I love doing all that. I love working with the people in the church and growing in my relationships with them. I mean, like anything, there were definitely some challenges, but they weren't that overbearing. Because overall, I felt like I was on a mountain in my life. And being the leader of Outreach and Missions helped me find my groove in ministry. Again, I loved working with my team to plan events. By January of 2020, the Outreach team was on a roll and we had a game plan set for the coming year. I had taken a team to Toronto for a mission trip in the summer of 2019, and I had another trip planned for April of 2020. And then, you guessed it, COVID-19 knocked me and everyone else off the mountain and put us in the valley. And I suspect with all of you, just as it was for me, those two months of lockdown were dreadful. At first, though, it was a little exciting because I could relax a little, read some books, play some games. But I'm an extrovert, and after about two weeks, I was starting to go nuts. And I, I was super happy, and I'm sure you all were, when the restrictions started to ease. I was hoping to get back on track with outreach and missions and just get things going once again. However... In July of 2020, I was informed that my contract was not going to be renewed the following summer. I tried to fight it off, but I immediately descended into the valley of despair and depression. And I was stubborn. I tried to fight this for five months by myself, but I wasn't going anywhere. It was like a van stuck in the mud. So eventually, I reached out to a Christian counselor, and after three sessions, I started to ascend out of the valley, only to slip back down once again when the time came for me to announce my transition. And what made this even more difficult is Naomi and I didn't believe God was calling us away from our town. And I know some of you may think the fact that our contract wasn't being renewed as a sign, but I don't believe so. We spent a lot of time in prayer and seeking God, and every corner we took we were given the same answer. Stay. I attended two more sessions with my counselor, and with the help of the Spirit, I rose from the valley of despair and started living in the normal valley of everyday life. That was until my last Sunday at the church. A soft, gentle whisper. 
Back to Elijah for a moment. Elijah allowed fear to dictate his actions. He ran away figuratively and literally. The Bible doesn't tell us why Elijah decided to travel for 40 days and 40 nights to Mount Sinai. I like to imagine it's because he believed he'd encounter God there. It was a safe zone in his valley of life. And it was here that God became even more real for Elijah. Though not in the way Elijah anticipated. Like we often do in our valleys, Elijah complained. He told God he was the only one left. No one listened to him. In response, the Lord challenged him to go stand out on the mountainside. And as he did, a mighty windstorm came, followed by an earthquake, and then fire rained down. But God's voice was not heard in any of those actions as Elijah likely expected. His voice finally came in a soft, gentle whisper and asked Elijah what he was doing at Mount Sinai. The prophet repeated his complaint once again, this time I imagine doing so as if he was a scared puppy with his tail between his legs. He had witnessed the power of God on Mount Carmel and now again at Mount Sinai. He was always bearing witness to God's grace. He saw God's grace on Mount Carmel with the people of Israel, and now he was seeing God's grace here to him and how God was speaking to him. He wasn't yelling. He wasn't berating. He wasn't putting Elijah in his place. God spoke to Elijah with grace. And in his grace, the Lord commanded Elijah to return, and he gave him some jobs to do. One of those was anointing Elisha, who would one day take Elijah's place. And at first, it may seem like God is replacing Elijah, but that isn't what's happening here. God is showing Elijah that he has a plan. Elijah is not alone and God is still in control. Elijah was being reclaimed in humility by the grace of an all-loving God. Elijah wanted to wallow in his pity. God reminded him to stop thinking of himself first and put the interests of others, specifically God and the people of Israel, ahead of Elijah's own interest. God's grace is currently reclaiming me in humility during this valley after ending my time at the church. I wonder how my relationships will be affected. Will people still want to be with me? Will they still want to talk? Do they still care about me? And when I'm in these valleys, I overthink things a lot. I wonder if I'm being a nuisance. Or maybe I wonder if they even value my friendship anymore. Maybe I did something to offend or hurt them. And all these questions and more run rampant in my head. And I want to throw myself a pity party. There are days when the haze from the depression blocks out everything else. Like I said, we'll dig into depression more in a later chapter, but it's part of my current journey and it needs to be mentioned. Even this morning when I was writing this, I was reminded even more about being reclaimed in humility. My wife has been working this summer and I've been spending time at home with Caleb, our nine-month-old son. And I've been on parental leave from my bookstore job since she was born last October. And on the weekends, Naomi's been traveling up to her parents to help prepare her grandfather's house to be sold, see ways to be put into a nursing home. I haven't been sleeping well lately, likely due to the depression, and I haven't been feeling the greatest the last couple of days. Caleb, like usual, went to sleep perfectly fine last night. I took some sleeping pills to knock me out, and they worked. 
until 5 a.m. came along and I heard the distinct cries of my son. And I was hoping I was dreaming. Like, I tried to pretend I was dreaming. You mean, am I the only one that you just watch your kid cry and hope you're just imagining it? Pretty sure I'm not. Anyways, I groggily rolled out of bed and went to Caleb's room. He was starting to sit up in his crib and cry. This is abnormal for him, really, because usually he goes to bed around 9, 9.30 and wakes up around 7 or 7.30 without a problem. And I know some of you parents right now are glaring at me and I forgive you for that. We're a little bit blessed with Caleb, I understand. But I picked him up, I tried to rock him back to sleep, didn't work. I tried to give him milk, he didn't want that. I tried to reason with myself and to reason with Caleb that there was no reason for him to be up this early to want breakfast because this was an unholy hour but as every second passed his screams dictated I was wrong and I'll be honest I was not being humble my motives and attitudes were focused solely on me I was angry and frustrated with Caleb my voice was harsh with him at times and I even kicked one of his stuffed animals out of my way I was also angry with God I knew the way I was acting was not in line with him, but I didn't seem to care. I wanted to sleep, and yet here I was, up at 5 a.m. with a screaming child. I texted my wife. She called, and I could hear the smile in her voice. She understood. But I wasn't smiling. I was still raging. I fed Caleb some breakfast, and he calmed down, and I guess I decided to eat my own breakfast too, and I put on a movie on Netflix, and I started to calm down. By about 7.15, Caleb was back asleep and I had a two-hour nap, and he slept for three hours. When I woke up, I called up my wife and I apologized. I texted a close friend and confessed to him as well. I also spent time with God and asked for forgiveness. God didn't berate me. He didn't tear me down. He spoke to me in grace. He reminded me that I still need to be reclaimed in humility by him, even more so when I'm going through a deep valley in my life. He told me this valley was going to end and he was going to be with me through the entire thing. And I'm not proud of my actions, and neither was God. But his grace was and is sufficient for me in these times. And God's grace is sufficient for you. Caleb woke up pretty shortly after I was writing this. And it was a much better wake up. He was content and happy. He smiled when he saw me, which brought joy to my heart. And then I even brought him in. He was sitting on my lap, trying to touch the keyboard while I finished the chapter. The grace of God was literally being displayed to me through the smile and laugh of my son. I don't deserve it, and I didn't deserve it. None of us do. That's why it's called grace, and God loves to overflow with it. Maybe you're on a mountain in your life right now, and that's great. While we are there, we still need to remember that God's grace is the reason you are on the mountain. Hold on to that when the valleys come, because they will come. Maybe you're going through a valley right now. Is it just one of the mundane, everyday valleys, or is it much deeper? God's grace is sufficient for us in the valley. He is with us every step of the way. I know it doesn't feel like it. It feels like God is everywhere, but with us. Take a step back. God isn't going to yell. He's going to speak to you and us in a soft, gentle whisper.
And we may not hear it if we're taking the time or if we're not taking the time to spend away from social media or our phones or television or texting or eating entire cartons of ice cream. God may be speaking to us, but we may not be hearing him because everything in our life is drowning him out. And I encourage you, go find a place where you can spend time alone with God without any distractions. I did it. Just last week, I was still going through this valley. My wife and Caleb, they went home to see her parents. And I stayed home and I spent the night just pouring out to God and praying and seeking him. And you know what? He started taking the depression away. He started lifting me up out of the valley. You know, I told him exactly how I felt. And you can tell him exactly how you feel. Because God can handle it. Let yourself be washed in the grace of God. It's one of the best parts of being reclaimed. In humility. You see, mountains are great. But it's in the valleys we learn to be reclaimed in humility. So that when we arrive on the mountain, we don't think it's by our own doing. Instead, we understand how the grace of God is working in our lives, and we will continue to work whether we are on a high mountain or low in a valley. Thank you again for joining me this week on Reclaimed. I'm glad we were able to dig into mountains and valleys together. How did God speak to you today? I know he's still speaking to me, even though he's lifted me up out of that valley. I still need to live in humility with him. And I encourage you to let someone know if he is speaking to you, or maybe you just need to write it in a journal. Because being reclaimed by God only works when we're open with ourselves and with others. May the Lord be with you this week. I look forward to having you join me next week as we discuss to obey is better than sacrifice. Penei Akhmatov, my friends. We will see you soon. And here are a couple resources you can look up if you'd like to dig into more about what we talked about today. You can look up Get Your Life Back by John Elridge or Grace is Greater by Kyle Eidelman. <laughs>